0: The building that has the highest rent, the highest income, also the property is a property where people want to live in, either because there's a limited number of housing, supply and demand, or their amenities are so nice that by default is going to be worth more.
1: Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. All right, welcome to the show. We are here today with Dr. Sanjay Sharma. He is a real estate professional and visionary investor making waves in the LA and Southeast multifamily market. He has a proven track record as an investor, capital raiser, and syndicator has brought remarkable returns to physicians and high net worth investors, helping pave the way to financial, geographical, temporal, vital, and mindset freedoms. I love that. And we will have (laughs) to dig into that some more. So welcome to the show, Sanjay.
0: Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you.
1: Oh, welcome. So tell me more about these freedoms. This is great stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's freedoms that, that... we all want, right? We're both doctors. I know a little bit about your story. You've definitely tasted freedoms in your time and are experiencing it now in a lot of ways. There's the obvious one that we all look for is is a financial freedom. What would it take where we've got enough money coming from our passive investments that you may not need to see patients. You may not need to um, go to the hospital. That's what financial freedom is. But a lot of it is more the other freedoms. What is it to have time freedom? Or how much is it worth it for you to be able to do what you want to do on the schedule that you want? You can spend time with the kids, spend time with the parents, spend time with the dogs, go up on to your home by the lake. Geographical freedom goes along with that. How can you do what you do, but be in a different country or be in the different locations? It's hard to see patients that way. I take it that you can do telemedicine. Things have changed over the last few years. And then vitality. All us doctors know what that is. I'm an oncologist. So I really, really understand when a person comes in and they're like, I've been waiting for the day when I retire. I can buy my RV. I can go around the country, go around the world, see the grandkids. And I've had that abdominal pain. And now that ends up being an advanced malignancy. Vitality is in your health is so darn important. And then mindset. You got to be strong inside. We go through a lot as physicians. It took a, a significant amount of time and confidence to go through med school and all the things that we did. And we just got to keep that strength up. So that's what I kind of talk about my five freedoms, which all of us relate to it. All of us may have different viewpoints and how they title it, but I think it's something, it's a goal, whether you voice it or not, it's in you.
1: And I love that because for some people, they may be looking to move beyond medicine, but for other people, are trying to stay in it. It can be a tougher and tougher grind and things are changing and don't always feel like they're going in the favor of doctors. And the more you feel like you're not trapped, the more you can Mm -hmm. practice the way you want to and enjoy the process. Those are so awesome. So we both, and this is actually how you originally reached out, is we were both graduates of the Medical College of Virginia. You went to medical school there and I completed my training but you spent some time all over the country here you did your internal medicine program at wash u in st louis and then your fellowship in new york city and then found the love of your life and settled down in southern california having been all over you've seen lots of different real estate markets and kind of worked in different markets What is it that draws you to a real estate market?
0: Oh, okay. I'm glad you brought it up that way because I did see different types of markets, either intentionally or unintentionally, meaning whether I was analyzing the properties or just innately understanding what it is. So I did spend lots of time in the Midwest, at St. Louis, at Wash U. And quite frankly, rent was cheap. It's not that expensive to live in St. Louis compared to the other places I lived in. So I could get a feel. I mean, now I would, you know, use terms like net operating income and all that kind of stuff. But I could get a feel for kind of what buildings we were worth. I went to med school. We both went to med school in Richmond. I don't know where you live, but I lived in Church Hill. We had like a hundred fifty, two hundred year old row home. We actually rented from an antique dealer. So we had like antique stuff. It was so like fitting. It was so like old Richmond. So you got a sense of like, well, there could be longevity to buildings. And then, bam! I lived in New York City. And then, you Nina, know, my wife is from Southern California and we had this tiny little apartment in New York and we loved, it was a one bedroom, the bathroom was about this big, you know, the kitchen was about this big and we couldn't have asked for more. But that's when I started really thinking about real estate, where we recognized that buying a two bedroom apartment back at that time, I think it was around 600 grand, I think is what it was. And we started really seeing appreciation. And then I remember one of my uncles said, well, Why are you renting? Buy. In fact, don't buy your apartment, buy the building across the street. And I thought that was the craziest thing ever. I was like, Who the heck buys a building? Now I buy buildings, but who the heck <laughs> buys buildings? And we never did, but we were always like, you know, in retrospect, man, son of a gun. I wish I would have owned an Upper East Side in, in Manhattan. So I really got to taste different types of real estate market. I really got to live in super high expensive dollars per square foot, recognizing what appreciation can do. And I've also lived in areas in which traditionally appreciation doesn't happen a lot. I can relate it now as a real estate professional is investing in cash flow or investing in appreciation, or how can you do value add? How can you take a Richmond property that's a hundred years old? and I forgot that area. I think it's called the fan, wherever all those yeah, restaurants a fan. and bars were and, you know, you can make those buildings kind of amazing and create income about it. And we all have it wherever we live in whatever situation we are. We're surrounded by real estate. You and I happen to be professionals in it. And, but we actually all, are, we all experience it. We're all professionals and you can gain a lot of knowledge that way.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting thing that the deals can be found in almost every market. And when you're buying for cash flow is where you can often look around and find stuff close to you as you grow, certain markets are better as far as there's more opportunity for appreciation. But I think that's a key thing, that appreciation that a lot of the time people think about, oh, I bought a house and my house is worth more. Isn't that awesome? That only really means anything if you're going to sell it and move someplace else that has appreciated less as if you just move across town, it's rare that you see one part of town appreciate while the other doesn't, unless you're mm-hmm. a really savvy neighborhood hopper. So when you're buying commercial buildings, it's really the cash flow that pays the bills. Mm-hmm. Now, some places here in Green Bay, things don't appreciate like they do in other parts of the country. But the nice part mm-hmm. is that when other places crash and see more volatility. Volatility in Green Bay is uh, hardly anything. So it's pretty stable. And both of those are things you can look at in how you want to invest in a really stable market or a market that has a little more volatility to it.
0: Mm -hmm. But you know what, you're bringing up two good points. So A, you talked about, because I answered your question earlier in terms about what kind of feeling what real estate is around you, seeing appreciation in. A uh, residential real estate and you appropriately said that that building or your house is worth what the neighbor's house is. So that was one point you made in terms of how buildings are valued. And then two, what can you do to force appreciation? So when you're looking at a building in the commercial space or when I'm looking at a residential space in terms of multi-family apartment building, what can you do recognizing how the market is, the stability of the market, whether it's the Midwest or the East Coast or the Southwest, And how can you force that appreciation? How can you make it worth more? What are your skills and what have you learned in order to kind of open your eyes and recognize what's there and what can you unearth?
1: That's an interesting thing that we look at a house. And I just use that example because almost everybody listening probably has bought a house. And if you're going to force appreciation in your house, it's usually you're going to remodel it, Mm -hmm. where when you get into commercial properties, there's also value added in, in remodeling, but you will also force appreciation if you have a building that's been poorly marketed and isn't fully rented. It's funny. I talk to people and they're like, well, if somebody else can't rent it, how are you going to rent it? And it's interesting that in some places, it's just somebody hasn't tried to rent it. And it seems crazy, but I think the most often story is you have an owner who's owned it for a long time and- They've got enough cash flow out of it. They're retired and they don't have big cash needs. And there's enough money coming in and they just kind of don't pay attention as long as there's money in the bank. And 10 years later, if it's an apartment building, it's only 70% full. Or if it's a strip mall, it's the same thing. And then when they decide to sell, just renting it, the value of that building based upon what it brings in goes up. And you've just made it not only cash flow better, but worth more since that cash flow is what drives the cost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of what you and I do in listening to you is you make it sound simple, but it's simple because of how good you are and the skills you have and the network that you have. I mean, it goes the same for me because you understand in your professional life, right? Like, you're a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not going to do a radical prostatectomy, right? Like, a, I don't have an interest in B, I quite honestly don't know how to do it. Even if, as many YouTube videos, I'm not going to learn the da Vinci and do all that kind of stuff. And you probably don't want to get chemotherapy and understand immunotherapy. So exactly. it's the professionalism and it's the skills that we develop. So you can talk about and I can talk about forcing appreciation. You can take a commercial building and get a, a five-year lease at an increased rental rate where other people's could. And that's your talent.
1: So for somebody who's listening, if they're just starting to learn about this and they're like, okay, force appreciation, just go through what a business plan might be for you of how you're going to force appreciation, how you're going to take that money from your investors and turn it into more money so that it flows back to them.
0: Yeah. So first of all, you have to look at a building, whether it's commercial or whether it's a residential or non-residential as a business. Okay, so it's a business and that's what the value of the business is. And the example I typically use, I say, look at two McDonald's. So one McDonald put it right on freeway where they get a zillion cars and everyone after school stops there and everyone after work stops there, everyone goes there for lunch, whatever and take a McDonald's in kind of a sleepy residential town. It's the same burger, it's the same model, it's the same soda, it's the same french fries. But if you wanted to own one, you want the one off the freeway. And that's the one that's worth the more money. So now, let's look at that model in terms of a multifamily apartment building. So the building that has the highest rent, the highest income, also the property is a property where people want to live in, either because there's a limited number of housing supply and demand or their amenities are so nice that by default is going to be worth more. So when you look at a building, if I take a building and I say, hey, the income generated off this building is this much. If I can increase the income on that, either by increasing rent, decreasing expenses, the income or the value of that building is increased. And you see that literally in the cost of the building. And there's something called cap rate, which is a relatively consistent percentage that's within the community. So say, for example, you're buying something at a 5% cap rate, and this is the kind of you know language that we talk about. Okay, this is a five cap, this is a six cap. That means that the price of the building is equals the net operating income divided by the cap rate. So let's say I bought a building that is in a community where the buildings sell at a 5% cap rate, okay? And again, you know that through your broker relationships and you're in the field and you recognize it. So now, let's say I increase the income on the building by $100,000 because I've changed the dog park. I've done all this to the building that put new windows in. Now that value of the building is 100,000 divided by 5%, which is, if I do the math correctly, is $2 million. Is that right? So I just forced the building to be worth $2 million more by my business plan. I didn't wait for the apartment next to me to be worth $2 million more. I forced that. I made the rent go higher. I decreased expenses. And that's what forced appreciation is. You
1: know, I like your analogy of it. It makes it make more sense when you talk about it as being the value of the business, because it's a rental business. And sometimes the real estate is just the shell of which mm-hmm. the business operates out of. So... When you're doing these things to make it run better, or be more valuable, you're making the business worth more. Typically, the real estate doesn't sell separate from the business. So, from the standpoint of commercial real estate, I love that analogy. It would kind of be like with your McDonald's. You don't ever see it with McDonald's because they don't let McDonald's get run down. But with some other yeah. restaurants and fast food, you may see that that if the neighborhood would support a nicer restaurant but the one that's there has been there for a while and hasn't been taken care of and you come in and you improve the menu and you make it look nicer Mm -hmm. and give a better experience then you can charge more for your food you're going to do more business the business is going to do better and make more money Mm -hmm. i hadn't heard that compared to uh, a restaurant before to mcdonald's i like that
0: and I really shouldn't do that as an oncologist because, you know, McDonald's for any doctor and healthcare don't really coincide, <laughs> but we all understand it.
1: <laughs> it's not just McDonald's. <laughs> so there's a lot of things, yeah. the average American diet, that aren't ideal.
0: I hope I just didn't mess up your podcast when McDonald's is looking to for an advertiser. Uh, <laughs> They're like, uh uh-uh, uh, Dr. Sharma.
1: I just lost my first advertiser. <laughs> They have made a healthier menu, so I give them credit. There are some different options available now. I think there's adjusting to the market. So let's just go back a little bit. When you came into real estate, let's just hear your story in a little more detail. So you were in New yep. York City. You realized like, wow, hey, they're paying a lot of rent here. This is going to somebody. So you didn't buy anything in New York City at the time, right? Nope. Yep. No. So you met your wife, and you made this transition to the land of sunshine. Now you're here in Southern California. How did it all start there?
0: Yeah, so we're talking about real estate. So we moved here. And actually, my wife's family is into real estate. They own apartments, and they've been very happy with it. And I actually saw early on kind of the work that they did, especially my brother-in-law's in terms of managing the buildings. And I always thought to myself, wow, that's a lot of work. But I still didn't jump in. But what I did do is I started investing in syndication. So I was a limited partner on a building. Now I'm a syndicator, but at that time I invested as a limited partner. And I remember going to the meeting and talking about the investing and I really didn't understand what I was doing. And I truly hope in terms of what I do and in terms of what you do is that you educate people so they know what they're doing because they said, okay, hey, we're going to put money together. We're going to buy this medical office building and the practice is going to be the ones who are renting. I was like, all right, that sounds kind of good. And you're going to make some money." And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> how much money are I going to make? I didn't have much money back then. And they're like, well, you're going to do pretty good. And you're going to get like a percentage of, I forgot what the numbers were, but whatever the numbers was. And they said, by the way, only invest if you don't feel threatened by losing this money. I was like, what? I don't want to lose my money." But everyone around me was doing it, so I did it. And that actually ended up being super awesome. I now get 30% returns on that money I invested like way back when. It was like this much money. But that introduced me into the real estate world. That was my first introduction in terms of whereas in New York, someone told me to buy a building. And I said, who the heck buys a building? So all of a sudden, hey, you know what? I kind of bought a building. And that led to another syndication. And that was actually kind of another funny story. It's like a year and a half or two years into it. The sponsors contacted me and they said, oh, you know what? We're going to sell the building. I was like, darn it. I screwed up. They're probably bankrupt, probably on fire. And what I didn't realize is they sold it and I got like an 80% return. I was like, oh my goodness. And that was a big (laughs) industrial commercial building. And then I got involved in my own active deals and I bought a duplex. And at that time, there was kind of like a little bit understanding of ADUs. This is Southern California. This is Long Beach, LA in terms of building ADU. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? That makes sense. And we turned a duplex into a triplex and exited that like at a 40% return. And then we took that and bought a triplex and a fourplex. And then recognizing how you can force appreciation, I built bedrooms and I kind of beautified the place and I picked in locations that were gentrifying. And I went for rents that were under a $1,000 to exiting those buildings where rent was close to $3,000 a door. And so it was just building and building and I realized where I want to be in a way to attain the freedoms that I want to achieve and practice the medicine the way that I want to practice. I wanted to be the one buying the buildings. That's what brought me into the syndication world. That's what brought me into the capital raising. And I wanted to share these freedoms with my partners. I want my urologist, my local urologist to be completely financially independent in practicing for the love of what he or she has for prostate cancer and bladder cancer and all the stuff that you do. And likewise, for my partners in oncology, my medicine partners, et cetera. So that basically, but anyway, that's how I got into real estate. I kind of teased into it. I saw it happen and I recognized, okay, I can do this. And then I just kept on going from there.
1: I wanted going back to one of the things you said before, where you talked about, you probably should have known more, you know, that's a tough one because you never know enough I mean, I think as docs, we're really prone to analysis paralysis and being like, okay, I was about ready, but then I heard about this thing that went wrong. So I got to go learn about that. So that doesn't happen to me. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to do this and I got to learn about that. So it doesn't happen to me. And next thing you know, it's years later and somebody's going, you know, I was going to do that. And I just was never quite comfortable with it, Mm -hmm. but there's a point where you got to jump in. And I don't know where that optimal point is. And I think it's up to everybody to learn for themselves. And maybe it's starting smaller, finding deals Mm -hmm. with small minimum investments. I think the first syndication I invested in had like a $20,000 minimum, which at the time felt incredible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Think about how much you got paid in residency in Richmond.
1: <laughs> Not much more. Oh, yeah. I think before that, like I bought a real estate REIT that had always performed really well, but it had like a $10,000 minimum. I'm like, wow, that seems like a lot. And so, I don't even know these people. So, I kind of stepped up and I said, okay, now I'm going to do a syndication. And I went to one of the online platforms and I looked and I looked and looked for And basically my criteria were the lowest uh, minimum investment possible. And Mm -hmm. it's in a market that I like. And I didn't really know anything about the markets anyway. I had just from minimal research decided there were good ones or bad ones. And everybody seemed to love Florida. So it ended up being in Florida. And the funny thing is, is when you're learning, and maybe everybody's not like me, but I'd taken a course and I was reading stuff and you think you know this stuff and it feels like you're learning it but it's like being a doctor you go to med school and you sit in class and once you have a person in front of you all that stuff that you heard it's tiny until you start to really do it and i think it's the same thing here is you got to start smaller find some point where you're comfortable and then you got to jump in because all of a sudden these things When you get those updates from your sponsor and they're talking about something, you're like, what is that? What I spent $10,000 to fix the pool. I didn't even know they had a pool. (laughs) And and you're like, how did I invest in a place with it? I didn't even know they had a pool. (laughs) Uh, There was another one. I think I read their whole plan. I read it really well. And then I get an update and it says, well, we've now acquired 70% 70% of the complex. I'm like, 70? What? what <laughs> happened?
0: Like, I, I thought we bought the whole thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I miss somewhere, you know, here's how you can put deals together. But somebody had been aggregating. It was a condo community of townhouses and had been yeah. buying them all up. And somebody bought, got to like 40% and yeah. then sold it to somebody else who was going to finish the job and then remodel them but they needed to get by the bylaws to something like 80%. And then they could actually force people to sell, but they didn't want to do that and whatever, you know. So this was the whole plan is they were buying this condo complex, remodeling the whole thing and then renting it. And somehow in that, I missed the fact that they didn't <laughs> buy the whole thing. And so you start... Looking back and going, but when yeah. you're reading it the first time, you think about yeah. some of the things when you started oncology and the names of all the drugs. The guys who have been doing it forever, they just spill off their tongue as, you know, yeah. because it's part of their normal, it's like a banana and a tomato. Of course, you know what those are. <laughs> uh, and so as you do more, the words aren't as confusing and you actually start uh, to pick up more of the meaning. I, at least for me, I had to start and have it sink in of those. So when you were just starting out, did you ever have any go bad on you?
0: You know, I've been fortunate, or I should say I've been stupid enough not to recognize the badness as it happened. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say, thankfully, I haven't been disappointed in anything. Yes, in some deals, the returns weren't as strong as I would have hoped it would have been. There was some deals where I spent a higher amount on rehabs. And I've had rehabs where I had to redo the rehabs that I thought I had done the rehabs. I've had things like that. Those haven't bothered me so much. And also, I compare a lot of what I do to other asset classes. Like I know what the stock market does and I can see that going up and down. I see that in my 401k and another space where doctors like to go for for obvious reasons is kind of like the angel investing side in terms of startup companies and stuff. And I've lost a ton of money in them and one full sweep, it's just like all gone. So to me, real estate as an asset class, yeah, there's been returns that haven't been as good. There's been things that have gone topsy-turvy but I guess it just doesn't affect me as (laughs) much. So that's when you kind of look at it at a broader scope, kind of as your whole financial picture. I don't invest in crypto, but crypto would be another one where you think to see things go like this. And that's not real estate. Real estate's got a steadiness to
1: it. It does. It kind of plods along, but everybody's heard the story of when something went really bad. And I guess those are out there, but as you learn enough and learn how to vet a deal, it's amazing how much you can de-risk a project Yes, going into yes. it. Yeah, that it can almost be like from the day you buy it, it's worth more money instantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first fourplex I bought, I remember looking at the analysis and going, well, wait a minute with this building, if I took it the day I bought it and sold them as four separate condo units, I'd make Mm -hmm. a 40% profit. I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, now I feel better. But I can run an apartment building, and if I really mess it yeah. up, I've got a yeah. good out there. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Another thing, you brought up several points. You talked about analysis. You brought up analysis paralysis. I talked about comparing it to other asset classes. But listen, just look at a lot of your listeners or physicians like us. Is It's a different risk category. I'm an oncologist. You're a surgeon. You guys are putting people to sleep, and they got to wake up. I mean, how does a building compare to that in terms of risk? It doesn't. I mean, the stuff we do on a daily basis is far, far, you know, on like the scale of society and nature, much, much higher, much, much bigger stakes. The other thing going back to medicine is when you talked about analysis paralysis, I'm a medicine subspecialist. So I'm sorry, I'm a medicine subspecialist. You're a surgeon. You're a do one, see one, teach one. I'm a, let's do a clinical trial about that. <laughs> let's think about these answers. Let's see if I can make a 4%, a confidence interval less than one. So, it's a different thought process. And I like what you said. And in all your examples, you did some calculated decisions, you weren't paralyzed, and you did it. And then you found out you had a pool or you only bought 10% of a pill eat or you or know, whatever it is. But it
1: turned out okay. He did all right. Yeah, there's been a few that, especially as interest rates went up, that's where I learned about that there were a lot of people using short term debt to amplify True. results. Yes. And one of those, it was only part of their debt stack, but they had a chunk of their mezzanine debt that was coming due, mm-hmm. and the project wasn't done. And luckily it wasn't the whole thing. Cause I saw deals out there where people were buying a whole complex on three to five year debt and going, Oh yeah, well, mm-hmm. we're only at 4%. We'll be back at 3% by the time we refinance. And instead their, their refi is coming and now they're at, at six yeah. or 7%. So at least this one was just part of that, but luckily they were good operators. That was part of the thing is they understood yes. where they were at yeah. and also, because of the rate changes, the market was drying up and people had a hard time finding deals. So they said, guys, we're not going to make the 15 to 20% we thought we're going to exit, get rid of this risk, and you're going to make 12.
0: It's like,
1: okay. But that's a good operator who, when things go sideways, they can yes. still make it pan out that maybe you didn't make as much as yeah. you wanted, but it was still okay.
0: Yeah. So go back to the analysis you were talking about. What you said is you need a good operator. When you're investing in a syndication, it's unlikely that you're going to drive to the property. It is really unlikely that you're going to be talking to the tenants and checking their credit scores and leasing the building. So you have got to trust, you got to recognize the skills that the operator has. And then in that trust, you invest with them. So that actually, your deal ended up being good. You got a 12% return on that as opposed to losing the building and losing all your money. So that's, like you said, it's the operate.
1: That is so great. All right. So we're going to wrap up this part of the episode today. And then we're going to come back and there's some other things I want to talk with you about. Specifically, you mentioned ADUs because this is a yeah. big deal in a lot of big cities, especially in Southern California. And it's something I hadn't heard about until recently, at least phrased that way. And also that you mentioned something else about driving to the unit and seeing your syndication property. So I want to talk about that some more. So thank you for joining us today on Surgeon Syndicate. And please come back for the second half of our conversation here with Sanjay Sharma. Thank you very much. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.